0: Please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Let's again ask the Lord to help us as we seek to worship Him. Father, we need You right now in this unique privilege that is ours to worship You in the study of Your Word. We pray that You would humble our minds and wills And allow Your Spirit to do His work in us, to make us like Your Son and our Savior, which is our ultimate desire to be like the Lord Jesus, to bring glory to Your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Any of you that might be familiar with the Avengers series can readily understand that Tony Stark is full of himself. (laughs) Things change a little bit as time goes on in that series, but his character demonstrates a self-absorbed person. And in searching for self-absorbed articles, I found this on lifehackdoc.org. In an article posted July 2019, the article was entitled, 15 Signs of Self-Absorbed People. So I'm just going to list them. They'll be on the screens. Enjoy. They are always on the defensive. They don't see the big picture. They are self-imposing. They feel insecure sometimes. They always think they are superior to others. They consider friendships a tool for getting what they want. They are extremely opinionated. They do not have long-lasting relationships. They do not have a real sense of empathy. They hide their insecurities behind a cloak of success. They devalue others. They can be arrogant. They hide who they are. They are extremely selfish. They think they are great and the world out there is wrong. And I'd say you could add a lot to this list, but one thing is that they see circumstances through the lens of how those circumstances will affect them more than how it affects others. You know what's interesting about reading a list on characteristics of being self-absorbed is this is generally the only time we don't think about ourselves as self-absorbed people. Oh yeah, I know a person like that, and like that, and like that, and like that. And so this during this one exercise, our minds are thinking about other people because it doesn't reflect nicely upon us to think that we might be one of those. Carly Simon sang a song, and you're going to love me for getting this stuck in your head. You're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. Perhaps... You are not as full of yourself as the next guy or the next girl. But to one degree or another, we are all greatly swayed by our own self-interests. Listen carefully. In this life, we will never exalt Jesus Christ to the degree that we should without emptying ourselves of our own resources affections and tendency for self exaltation in this life we will never exalt jesus christ to the degree that we should without emptying ourselves of our own resources affections and tendency for self exaltation we need to be journeying toward Emptiness. You and I need to be journeying toward emptiness. Our Bibles are open to Philippians chapter 2, and we already read this passage, but we will read it again. Beginning in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We want to study Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and it's a lot more of a meditation, I would say, than it is a study, though we will obviously study the text of the scripture here. We really want to meditate our way through this passage. Um, There's a lot to cover, and we don't don't have time to to exhaust all that this glorious chapter has to offer to us. But we will notice this, that God has called us to emptiness. God calls us to emptiness. We see that in the first five verses, which we just read, but I'll make reference to again. In verse 2, He tells us to complete His joy. So make me joyful in the Lord because of you by being of the same mind by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. Being guided by your own wisdom and way will never allow for one-mindedness with others. Being guided by your own wisdom and your own way will never allow for one-mindedness with others. One-mindedness, my friends, does not arrive because we gather together as the same race, or the same culture, or the same political party. We need no further example of this than to watch or read commentary on political debates from people that are of the same political party. They get on a platform, and they're answering questions. And while they're doing this, they are simply gutting one another character assassination, policy assassination. This is from people of the same political party. So here we are, gathered together, the the either Democratic or the Republican uh, debates, and here they are just killing each other. Well, they have so many of the same ideologies, right? The same ideas, same stances on so many things, but they gut one another because... One-mindedness does not come as a result of gathering with people that are kind of like you. So also, one-mindedness in a church is not due to people being of the same culture or language. Even having close-knit agreement in your doctrinal positions does not ensure one-mindedness. Because we are naturally self-willed And we are naturally interested in our own agenda. So you can have all the same uh, theological persuasions. So you might have a a one-mindedness about what the doctrine says, but that does not necessitate or uh, necessarily lead toward a true one-mindedness together in our spirit. So Paul recognizes this. He's the one that has basically given them the doctrine that they stand on. He is the one that has laid out the foundation for their theological standpoints. And he writes to them and says, listen, you need more than just having a doctrinal statement that reads in agreement with one another. There is a spirit that must be there. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4 where Paul calls out two prohibitions. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Why does he have to say that? Because it's natural for us to do everything in our selfish ambition and conceit. This is who we are as a peep as a person, who we are as people is we do what comes naturally to us and that is to cover our own hide and to care for our own skin. Do nothing from selfish ambition or or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So one prohibition there in verse 3. And then another one that's very similar in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it honestly. You have this probably memorized at this point. Verses 3 and 4, it's so familiar to you. Does knowing that information make it happen? You and I, we can tell ourselves, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, every morning when we wake up, we can chant it to ourselves all day long. We can write it on our forehead. We can bind it on our arms. We can paint it on our door frames. But that will not enable you or I to live humbly and selflessly. You know, Over the last period of time, I've adopted a new habit. When I'm driving on the road and someone cuts me off, and it happens all day long, right? Whenever you're on the road, someone's doing something ridiculous. I have adopted a habit. I say out loud a lot of times, I am nothing, I'm not important. Well, it's a helpful reminder. It doesn't actually produce the needed humility. I still feel as though they shouldn't have done it, I still feel as though they're kind of a turd. I want to raise my hands and yell and beep. I don't do that. But just because I don't raise my hands, yell, and beep doesn't mean I dealt with it correctly. Verse 5 is a wonderful key to this process. Look what he says. Have this mind. The Greek term is related to the word phreneo. It's the idea of sober-mindedness, the idea of a, a mindset, a mindset. Have this mind among or in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is a key to this process of one-mindedness among God's people. It is living in accordance with God's gracious gifting. It's not chanting. It's not saying the verse. Though saying the verse is helpful because it reminds you of what you need to be. This is why we we make sure we study and memorize God's Word, right? Because we need to know what God says. But knowing what God says does not bring about the obedience. It makes us aware when we fall short it also makes us aware when the Spirit is at work in us. So it's a glorious thing and a right thing for you and for me to know and understand God's Word, which is why we, we go to great lengths to make sure we understand what God has to say and keep His Word hidden in our hearts. With that, when we're armed with that information now, we, we come to the place of saying, Dear God, I need the mind of Christ I need for you to help me to empty myself. I need for you to help me to be humble before you and humble before others. It's so easy sitting in church. My heart, when I'm here preaching or listening, my heart is filled with joy and anticipation of what God has to say and of the spirit who's dwelling within me, but when the, the rub comes, when you're in the midst of a conflict, I don't always feel that same joyous feeling inside of me. Sometimes I feel something else. You know what that something else is? It's me. And that thing you feel inside of you, it's not your spouse. And it's not your kids. And it's not the world. It's not Obama's fault. And it's not Trump's fault. It's you me but God offers to us his gracious supply in the midst of our need and so when you're face to face with a conflict brother or sister in Christ husband or wife parent or child co-worker neighbor or on the road father help me I need I need your gracious supply of the mind, the mind of Christ, that that I have a a part in. Why do I have a part in it? Because I've been united together with Jesus. When I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus Christ for my salvation, I've been united together with Christ. I I have a part. I can have an expectation that that mind of Christ can be dwelling in me and controlling me. It's not for the spiritual elite. It's for the Christian. It's for the one that knows Jesus Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We'll talk more about this shortly. But for now, understand that the ability to have the mind of Jesus Christ is one of the many benefits that are ours as a result of our redemption. It is not automatic, but is rather an available grace. God calls you and me. He calls us to emptiness. Secondly, as we move further in the passage and briefly, Christ Jesus demonstrated emptiness. We're very familiar with this, and it's deeply theological. His point is not even necessarily to dive deeply into this theology, but to know it. And so we're not going to suck all the meat off of the bones here, but rather just get the general sense of what he's saying in verse 6. Speaking of the mindset of the Lord Jesus, who, though he was in the morphe, the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stop there for a moment. Jesus Christ our savior did not hold tightly to his visible display of equality with God our savior the lord Jesus Christ did not hold tightly to the visible display of his equality with God so we don't have time right now to deliberate about the deity of the lord Jesus Christ he is god he is the second person of the triune godhead he he is the Son of God. He is the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. He is the Savior. He is the Sovereign Lord over the church. And He is our soon-coming King. This we know. This is who He is. In His emptiness, which He mentions, it says in the beginning of verse 7, but emptied Himself. In His emptiness, He did not cling to To his visible, glorious manifestation of his divine nature. In his emptiness, he did not cling to the visible, glorious manifestation of his divine nature. A thing to be grasped. He didn't count a thing to to be grasped. You, You can think of when you're going through a crowd and you know that there are pickpockets around. You put your hand in your pocket, on your wallet. Maybe if you have your phone, you do maybe the same thing. So now you have your hand in your in uh in your pockets covering up your phone and your wallet so no one can take them from you. You don't want to lose them. They're important to you, so you hold on. When I think of a thing to be grasped, I could lose my wallet and it'll be all right. I could lose my phone and it'll be all right. I think about my children. Whenever we're in a situation where there's danger around, I want my hands on them. It kind of is a difficulty for me to have someone else's hands on them in that situation, but I, I try to I try to let that Happen, you know. My, my, you know, if it's someone else in my family holding their hand, I'm like, okay. I keep looking, making sure we we were at Disney Springs this last uh, week on a couple of occasions. It's free to go into Disney Springs unless you want something, and then it's a billion dollars. But nonetheless, <laughs> it was crazy crowded, and there was my family and the Krawsiks, and then my my wife's cousins and her family, and so we're like making sure everyone's accounted for. The three of them, little children, and then five of us. We really had to only concern ourselves with two of our little ones. Our other ones are quite capable. Nonetheless, we're going through this, and you are making sure someone's got their hands on one of them so that no one can take them. When I leave my house on Sunday mornings, and, and Amy is over here, and the kids are over here, and they're doing their thing to prepare, and, and I bring my two little ones over, and they want to run across the parking lot every time. No. They get mad at me. No, you're not running across the parking lot. Why can't we run? Because I want to have my hands on you. I want to make sure you're safe. Maybe we get maybe halfway across the parking lot, and I know that no one can run them over. I'll let go, and they can run over to the door. Fine, but I want to. I want to hold on to them. Why? Because they're important to me. I'm going to grasp on to that. Jesus didn't grasp on to people knowing visibly. That He is the creator and sustainer of their very life in His emptiness. He didn't grasp onto this. It goes on in the passage, but He emptied Himself. Verse 7, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Emptying Himself does not mean that He divested Himself of His divine nature. That it would be false doctrine. This is not what it's saying. Most conservative theologians understand this to mean that Jesus Christ gave up the free exercise of His divine nature. Jesus Christ gave up the free or independent exercise of His divine nature. So the all-knowing Son of God could rightly say, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. How does this happen? God, and yet he doesn't know something. God doesn't know. Because he emptied himself of the free or independent exercise of his own divine nature. Now you could find that illustrated in in many other ways that Jesus gave up the free exercise of his divine nature when um, he makes other statements that are similar to this. The evidence, the evidence of his willingness to relinquish the demonstration of and the free exercise of his divine nature is seen in that he took on the form verse 7, same term as in verse 6, being in the form of God, verse 7 but entering himself by taking the form, morphe, of a servant so he was fully God and he was fully man and I would probably better state he is fully God and he is fully man he was born in the likeness of men and then verse 8 like a crown jewel The crown jewel of emptiness is that it is not emptiness unto emptiness, but emptiness unto something. Look at what it says in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now a lot could be said. You Think about Anyone that hangs on a cross, on a tree, is cursed. And Christ was willing to be cursed for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. He died, suffered the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. You think about what he's saying here. Jesus emptied himself of the free exercise of his divine nature. He humbled himself to the point that he became obedient to death. Not any death, but a cross death. It is foolishness, foolishness to the Gentiles, and it is a curse, a stumbling block before the Jews, public humiliation... Public humiliation is nothing, nothing compared to the difficulty he endured becoming sin and becoming the target of God's righteous wrath. How bad was it? Well, none of us know except we hear him utter, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, This is... Breathtaking. Why? Why did he empty himself? To lay his life down. Jesus emptying of himself was for the redemption of God's people. And as Romans 15.3 says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The sinfulness of the sinner Fell on me. Why? Because his whole purpose was to bring glory to the Father. To redeem a people. To fulfill the plan that they had from before the foundation of the earth. Christ Jesus demonstrated what emptiness is. That same emptiness that God has called us to. As we move a little further in the text, we want to notice this. God rewarded Christ Jesus' emptiness. God rewarded Jesus' emptiness. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed, granted on him the name that is above Every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Over the last few days, my wife has showed me some videos of a of a dude going to a campus. And this dude goes to the campus and he shows them five different pictures, and tries to get them to rank them. And two of them are presidents of the United States, one a current and one last term, and and they get ranked. But also, uh, one of the others is Adolf Hitler, and one of them is Jesus. And some of the times, Jesus was not rated first. Can you imagine that? Uh, And sometimes he was rated last. Can you imagine that? Popularity votes, uh, they don't count. Did you know that? Like, he could be the least popular person in history. And he's still exalted to the highest position and has been bestowed the greatest and highest name. Popularity doesn't tell the tale. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. This will glorify and does glorify the Father. Jesus was rewarded with the ultimate position and the ultimate name. This is what this text tells us. Jesus emptying himself resulted in the being placed in the highest position and being bestowed the greatest name. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read of Jesus being seated in the heavenly places far above all rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He has been Granted, he's been seated on, he's been given the highest position, highly exalted. He's also been granted the highest name. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read of Jesus having a name that is more excellent than any of the names of the angels. And certainly, the name Jesus stands as a preeminent name in world history. But the reference here is more likely to him being declared Lord. The reference alluded to here is from Isaiah 45. And he speaks of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing to the Lord. Now when I say Lord in this context, I am not saying capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Adonai. That equals master. Master. In Isaiah 45, when there is a proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord, and a bowing of every knee before the Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The word in the Hebrew is Yahweh. The Jews considered this the ineffable four-letter word. The unspeakable four letter word we don't say this is reserved for the god the self-existent one and jesus has been granted this glorious exalted great majestic name at the name of jesus your knee will bow my knee will bow your tongue will confess My tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. So God calls us to emptiness. Christ Jesus demonstrated this emptiness. God rewarded Jesus with this glorious reward because of His emptiness. And now, fourthly and finally, God enables and uses our emptiness God enables and uses our emptiness. This is very important, ladies and gentlemen, because you can tell yourself all day long, I want to be empty, I want to be empty, I want to be empty, and that's not going to get the job done. We're not talking about saying a, uh, a spell, a magic spell. We don't have a, a little lantern that we can rub, and, and the, the genie will come out, what is your wish? I'd like to be empty, please. It doesn't work that way. This is divine work. This is divine work that must be done. But we have assurance that God is the one who brings that work forward. He accomplishes it and he uses it for his glory. Look at what he says as he moves on. Verse 12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out. Work to the outside. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. To will and to work for His good pleasure. Working to the outside, our salvation, is a manifestation of our emptiness. We want people to Believers and unbelievers, to know that we are the redeemed of the Lord. Don't you want people to know that you're the redeemed of the Lord? The outworking only happens as a result of God's inworking. His work in us results in the work of emptiness coming out. So we want to talk for just a few minutes. This won't take very long. We're we're in good we're in a good place about some evidences from this text of emptiness. And then we want to talk about some obstacles to that emptiness. Then we want to talk about some tests of emptiness. It sounds long, but it won't be. Evidences of emptiness. First of all, an evidence of emptiness is union and communion with other believers. Verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. So this is a result of emptiness. This is what he led us to this, having this mind. It also leads us, And uh, evidence of emptiness, is interest in the needs and desires of other believers. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verses 12 and 13, it leads to spirit-empowered obedience. We just read verses 12 and 13. I don't think we need to reread it at this moment. Spirit-empowered obedience is a result or a demonstration of emptiness. In verses 14, 15, and 16, we're going to read it in just a second, but we'll make the point first. In evidence of emptiness is peaceful, righteous, Gospel-dispensing, word-dependent living. I know that's a mouthful, but it's worthy. It's a worthy mouthful. An evidence of emptiness is peaceful, righteous, gospel-dispensing, word-dependent living. Look at what verses 14 through 16 says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. righteous, God changing our lives. See, we've been declared righteous as believers. That's a done deal. But in the midst of our lives, God is demonstrating the righteousness He's granted to us in our lives. And so there'll be demonstrations of righteousness before a watching world, a crooked and perverse generation. And when that's going on, when they can see God's righteousness and peace within us, we're shining as lights. That's gospel dispensing. All the while, we must be holding fast, holding firm, grabbing on. Something to, to grasp onto the word of life. Why? Because the word of life is what gives us sustenance, guidance, that the Spirit of God then can remind us of and enable in our lives. Emptiness results in this peaceful, righteous, gospel-dispensing, and word-dependent living. And then as you look a little further, in verses 17 and 18, we notice that it results in joyful self-sacrifice. Think about that. Joyful self-sacrifice. This is the opposite of being full of oneself, isn't it? Look what he says. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Joyful self-sacrifice is a result of true spiritual emptiness. Emptying myself of myself. And then, and we don't have time to read all of the verses here at the end of Philippians chapter 2. Concern for the cause of Jesus Christ and his people. Now, what you'll notice in verses 19 to 24 is Paul talks about Timothy, and in verses 25 to 30, he talks about Epaphroditus. Maybe later on this afternoon, you might want to read through this and consider. I want to just point you to just a couple of verses in the midst of it to help us to understand what emptiness looks like. Look at verse 20. For I have no one like him, speaking of Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare... For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, this—he does something very sneaky. He doesn't actually. I, just, I like to think that things are sneaky. He's, he's actually right, right out there for you, for us. Listen to what he says. I have no one like Timothy. He thinks about others' interests. Oh, that sounds like something I heard earlier in the text, doesn't it? Look out not for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Yeah, that's good. He's concerned about the welfare of others, verse 20. And verse 21, listen to how he rephrases it. He says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Considering the welfare of your fellow believers, he equates with The interests of Jesus Christ. You see that. Look it down in verse 30. He does it again with Epaphroditus. He says, For he, Epaphroditus, nearly died, listen to what it says, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Your service to me. He came and served me in your stead, and this is the work of Christ. You see what he's doing here. This is no accident that he does this. He's not, it's not like a, a distant thought. This is right up front. He says, The interest of Jesus Christ is his people. When you serve God's people, you serve Jesus Christ. You can't serve Jesus Christ and not serve God's people, it doesn't work. If you don't like God's people, are you ready for this? You don't really like Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? You're kicking against the goads. You're hurting yourself and you're persecuting me when you deal with my people. See, emptiness gives us a concern for Jesus and His work and His people. These are evidences of Emptiness. But there are obstacles, friends. Obstacles to emptiness. You know what the obstacle is? You. (laughs) You know what my obstacle is? Me. It's not my wife or my kids or or the world. It's not Satan. He tries to be opposing, right? Yes, okay, I got it. The world tries to oppose. Yes, I got it. The big problem is right here. And the big problem for you is right there. Take a look, please, with me at Ephesians chapter 4. So you're in Philippians, just take a left. You'll find Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, before I read this passage. In preparing the believers of Ephesus for the essential instruction to be filled with the Spirit, Paul commended them to put aside sinful passions, sinful affections, and sinful activity that would prevent harmonious and fruitful life with the Holy Spirit. So listen to how he says this, beginning in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Listen carefully. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there Be no filthiness, or foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He lets us know, just to summarize it briefly, that there are things that will prevent you from being ready to be filled with the Spirit. So he says, these things need to be put aside. This is not the only place that God says this. Take a look at the book of James, chapter 4. I'm going to cut right into the middle of James' argument here, starting in verse 5 of James, chapter 4. He says, or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. see, there are obstacles and He tells us to set them aside. One of which is the devil of pride. You know, I'm not going to call it the devil of pride. So I don't know where that just came from. I be mean, the devil. The devilish character trait of pride. But it's not his pride that does it. It's mine. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 2. He's go, he wants to tell us about being, um, uh, growing in the word and tasting the glorious salvation of the Lord. But he tells us to do something first. He says, So put away, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. And envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Is how I would read that. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In Colossians 3.5, Paul said this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He goes on and lists some things. That's just a sample list. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. These are the obstacles to us being empty. Before I'll ever empty, be empty and ready for God to do what only God can do in me, there's some things that have got to get out of the way. He's the one that does that too. Isn't he? How have you done so far getting rid of your bitterness? Have you ever tried that? I'm gonna think of something else. I'm not gonna be bitter anymore. Yeah, good luck. I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. (laughs) doesn't work. I'll tell you what does work. God. He works. Listen to what the Bible says. You're familiar with it because I bring it up regularly. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit, by the Spirit, how do you access the spirit, dear Lord? I'm struggling desperately with bitterness or anger or gluttony or covetousness or fornication. I don't know what your problem is. I have plenty of my own. I know what my issues are. At least I think I do. Where do I go? Lord, I need, I need you to change me. I'm, I don't want to be this. I don't want to be robbed. Rob is of no good to his wife or his kids, his parents, friends, church body. Rob's got nothing to offer. I need, I need you to change me, to transform me, to make me exhibit Christ. And then, inestimable worth, inestimable value. Such a blessing to your wife, such a blessing to your children, such a blessing to your friends, such a blessing to your church. When Christ rules in you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. It is the putting off of our fleshly affections, our personal agendas and desires, that we come to be emptied and prepared for what God wants to accomplish in and through us. In putting off our affections, we are ready to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What are we renewed with? The Word. We're renewed with the Word. And what are we renewed with? The Spirit. What we lose in our emptiness, when we're putting all these things off, we're losing something, right? What we lose in our emptiness is then filled with the truth of the the Word of God and the Spirit of God Himself. Our emptiness prepares us for God's fullness. What Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes comes to fulfillment in us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be filled. We want to be filled with righteousness. We want to be filled with truth. So the reward for emptiness is fullness. It's fullness of God's Spirit and His wisdom and truth. How do we test ourselves to see if we're living in emptiness of ourselves? I have just four proposals for your consideration as we conclude. How do we test ourselves to see if we're living in emptiness of ourselves? Now, these are just samples. You might have a lot more suggestions. This is not exhaustive. But here are four thoughts. Whose life are you impacting? Your emptiness and filled, being filled with the Spirit, filled with God's grace and truth will impact others. Whose life are you impacting? Secondly, whose burdens Are you bearing? Thirdly, with whom are you weeping? We weep with those who weep. There are a lot of broken people, people in pain, people in turmoil, people who feel broken. They are broken. Who are you weeping with? And finally, who are you rejoicing with? With whom are you rejoicing? These activities require a significant sacrifice of time energy, emotion, and spiritual effort. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. My brother, my sister, what are you grasping onto that is preventing you from being emptied. Our Father, we marvel at our savior and his emptying of himself and his deep amazing humility that purchased for us the opportunity to be saved, to be redeemed and to have a place with you forever. We marvel that he tasted death. He fully experienced that death on our behalf to provide us with life. And we marvel that He lived not to please Himself, but to please You, and to take our reproaches when we reproached You. Father, we need Your help. We need need the humility needed to truly divest ourselves of our sinful, fleshly way to set it aside, to put off the old man. We need Your Spirit to help us to put to death the deeds and affections of the body. And we long to be filled, filled to overflowing by Your Spirit with the truth of Your Word for Your glory first and foremost for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for a light to a world that resides in darkness. Do your work in us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.